The Houston Asian American Archive collects individual oral histories, making these stories accessible in the forms of recordings and transcripts. Our heritage speaking for itself. Discover how your heritage fits into the story of Houston at haaa.rice.edu. Dear Houston, Happy Valentine's Day and welcome to this very special love theme podcast. When Haru meets Savi, love stories from the Houston Asian American Archive. I'm your host for today, Enshi, and we're going to hear stories from members of the Asian American community about their experiences with and feelings about love. Love is, of course, a broad subject and one opens to all kinds of interpretations. That's why we've tried to incorporate stories old and new that resonate across time, space, and culture to explore the quantum entanglements. Or are they just hormones that can sometimes conjure up butterflies in our stomachs through a mere glance from across the crowded room? We hear stories that speak to both unorthodox and traditional notions of love, stories of forbidden love, love at first sight, and love preordained. We'll ask the question: Can we, as Asian Americans, be in love as who we are? And more broadly, can any of us be in love as who we are? But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's sit back and listen to love tell its own story. Love at first sight. It's our most romantic notion, and one that transcends geography, culture, and for the most part, common sense. Who hasn't been instantly enamored by a total stranger, only to discover we've fallen in love with an ideal or even a mannequin at Neiman Marcus? I have to confess that is only partially a joke. But in some cases, love at first sight lives up to its lofty name, and even sustains itself, sometimes against incredible odds. Our first love story features Baek Hongji. Who was born in a small village in China in 1922? Okay, let's see now. I arrived. I arrived in San Francisco、uh, after about 23 days on the ship coming from Hong Kong to San Francisco. I spent about 30 days on Angel Island alone at the age of nine until I had passed all the questioning and been allowed to come on to the mainland. And I stayed in San Francisco for, for a few weeks, and I ended up joining my grandparents in Algiers, Louisiana, which is across the、uh, river from New Orleans. And I started school there. And、uh, a couple of years later, in 1934, I moved to Mississippi, where I was in my schooling. Stopped because Mississippi had a law that prohibited Chinese children from going to school to a white public school. And I worked from the age of 13 until I was 20 years old. When I got drafted into World War II, Mr. G was drafted into the U.S. Army as a photographer. He trained for a year in the States before arriving in England in 1943, where he was stationed for 10 months. This was followed by a year stationed in France, and finally four months in Germany. Despite bearing witness to and documenting the horror of war, 
Begji Nasatli passed away in June of 2020, always maintained that one scene stood out among them all. I arrived in England in November of 1943, and on New Year's Day, I was stationed in Manchester, England. Another Chinese soldier and I decided that New Year's Day would be a good time to go and find a good Chinese restaurant and have a good meal. So Liverpool was one hour's bus ride away. So he and I got on a bus and went to Liverpool. And we asked the bus driver to drop us off as close to Chinatown as possible. And he dropped us right in Chinatown. We went to the first restaurant. It was crowded. Didn't have room for us. We went to another restaurant. Same thing. We went to the third restaurant. Packed. We start walking out, and the waiter came running after us. And we got two people leaving, so we went back and sat at a little table for two. And it so happens that I sat facing a large ta- round table with f- six or seven people. And when I look up, there was a young girl, woman, who was who was staring at each other. And as I was eating, and she was eating, we, we looked up, we keep staring at each other. So finally, she went to the front door for something. So I told my friend, I'd be right back. <laughs> so I walked over to the front door, introduced myself, and got out my little black book. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I asked her if we could get get to know each other, or whatever I said. I don't know what I said. Anyway, she said, "You come back and meet my mother." And see what she said. That was her mother at the table. So uh, she said, "Told my mother." Uh, and this match, she asked me what my name was, and I couldn't tell her my real name because we had been advised not to get involved with the local people. So I didn't know what to say. We just called me Johnny, Johnny Doughboy. The girl's name was Joyce, a half Chinese, half Caucasian British girl. Her mother was not amused that her daughter had brought an American GI to the table, much less one named Johnny Doughboy. But then she softened. She said, "You can go home, meet her father, and then ask him." <laughs> <laughs> so, what's it? What am I gonna lose? So, okay. So I told I told my friends, "I'll see you back at camp." <laughs> so I followed them. Oh, I met the father, and by that time, oh. Uh, the time it passed, it was evening time, but dinner time. They were having dinner, so they invited me to stay for dinner. <laughs> and after dinner was, uh, the buses stopped running. So it was blackout time, war time. The buses quit running when they had their lights, because nobody, no cars can run with lights. So I had to end up spending the night at the English uh, uh, Red Cross type of a, you know, for soldiers. So I spent the night there, and the next morning I found my way back to the house. And、um, I started asking him if I could come back again. And he just so I keep going back. And in、uh, July of that summer, we were supposed to get married the same week as D-Day, but I didn't know that D-Day was going to happen on June the sixth. We were scheduled to get married on June the tenth because nobody was able to leave the base because、uh, we were invading France. So we postponed our wedding till July the 29th. So we got married, and we met, we got married, and we stayed married until she died at age 79.
From a romantic story of a love at first sight, we're going to pivot in another direction to a love story some might consider less romantic, but certainly no less enduring than that of Beck and Joyce G. Poonam and Atua Sahotra met each other through their parents in an arranged marriage. Their first two meetings were with both families, and the third time on their wedding day. They have been married for over 30 years. As first-generation Asian Americans, and from traditional families who believed in arranged marriage, both Mr. and Mrs. Sahodra found the open way of dating and courtship a little daunting in the context of their upbringing. Made a conscious decision to go this route. You know, dating is clearly very common. It's easily available, but I, I did have reservations about it because in the Indian culture, dating, especially for women, was considered to be a very negative thing that if you were dating that, you know, perhaps your morals were not so, not so high. And, um, you know, and of course, I was reminded of that too by my parents that if you do end up doing a lot of dating, then, then you should probably plan to marry that way and not try to marry the arranged system way because you know, it just doesn't work that way, especially, especially where women are concerned. You know, it, is a, it, it was a little bit different for men versus women, but um, that's, that's kind of the, the way that we were raised. And I knew that I wanted to marry someone Indian and preferably someone from India because I wanted to keep a connection to India um, for as long as, as long as it was possible for us to do so. I, I guess the family structure is very important and almost it was, uh, almost I grew up with the idea that it's the parents' prerogative to help the children find their spouses. And since the parents know the children very well, I always thought they could probably come up with a better decision than perhaps I could on my own. And also there weren't too many opportunities <clears throat> for dating and so forth. So I think as long as the children have the veto power, they are not forced into a situation. Uh, I think in parents doing the homework before introducing potential eligible partners to their children, I think is a very good idea. And I think it works in any society, as long as there is not the pressure that they have to marry the person that their parents elect. And we certainly didn't have that pressure. Uh, and so to a large extent, it was our choices. Well, I would say it was our mother's choices. The Sahotras maintained that while they could have ultimately vetoed their family's decision, there was certainly no love at first sight. I wanted, like, I wanted a tall guy, so I happened to be quite tall for an Indian woman. I'm like 5'6", um, and you know, I, I always thought I would marry somebody who was like six feet tall. That's what I used to dream about. And, but you know, that, was kind of, that was not really a, a deep reason to not marry someone. Well, obviously, uh, we each got a passing grade. My parents really liked him, and a lot of it is family. So our families are very, uh, I would say, very similar from the same part of the, the country, similar values and ethics. And so I think that was super important. The Sahotras have two children, one of whom, their son, Raj Sahotra, 
founder and executive director of Momentum Education in Houston, has a decidedly different take on love. He reflects on how his upbringing first influenced his own perspectives on love, dating, and marriage. I think, in terms of the romantic or or marriage sense, I think there was, and I don't know if this quote was said sort of how frequently, but it certainly came up as this notion of love will grow over time, after you know an arranged marriage perhaps happens, and so that that was sort of the extent. I'm thinking in elementary, middle. You know, kind of high school. Even that was sort of the extent to which the conversation revolved around love, with regard to the marriage sense. Over the years, Raj has found it challenging to reconcile his parents' view with his own. It's a debate that continues to this day.、Uh, you know, I think that they're they come at it from the perspective of what they have seen, and they have seen in their own situation, you know, an arranged marriage where the focus was on aligning. The family background, most importantly, kind of worked, and they see their friends from a similar generation, both back home in India and here, who have had a similar situation, and it has quote unquote worked. And then I think there's a contrast with the quote American way of doing things, where someone finds someone who they are compatible with directly, and. They see well, fifty percent or whatever the number is of American marriages end up in divorce, and so the conclusion is well, the family background way is superior, and don't worry about the kind of love piece because that will come with time. That kind of compares in a American quote unquote way versus Indian quote unquote way. It, it misses is that you. Want to consider both stability, of course, and compatibility, but also kind of the joy and the happiness. And I think the Indian way, quote unquote, kind of indexes more for stability and alignment of important characteristics, but doesn't index as much for joy or happiness. Whereas perhaps the you know Western way. Indexes a bit more for that, at the risk of potentially not not focusing so much on compatibility. Can love be stable? Should it be? The fact is that almost half of American marriages end in divorce, so it's safe to say that the conventional route of dating before marriage isn't exactly cutting it. How then can we explain that statistics on arranged marriages report that only around four to six percent of these quote-unquote loveless relationships fail? Should we be treating marriage more like a business arrangement? How do we account for love, or even define it? In his famous work, *The Devil's Dictionary*, the writer Ambrose Bierce defines it thusly: "Love, noun, a temporary insanity curable by marriage." Perhaps that's too cynical. Perhaps suggests Rajasahotra, a compromise in cultures can help bridge the proverbial divide between head and heart. When we consider what love is or should be, and so for someone like me who has seen both the traditional Indian mindset and the Western approach, it's about finding the best of both worlds. And I take that perspective in everything in my life: is how do I find the best of both worlds? 
to have the strength of being someone who parents are one culture and is living in another culture. Because to me, that's a big strength, but only if you can draw on the best from both. Because it can become a weakness if you're sort of paralyzed and unable to go to each side because you're very unsure of where to go. And that's when it becomes a challenge. I think it is for many of us, you know, in high school or even in college. But I think as we you know, get older, reflect more, and are better able to take the best aspects of both sides, it becomes a huge, huge advantage, actually. It doesn't matter where you were born, how you identify, or from which culture you came. There is no accounting for fate. In the case of Jimmy and Deborah Lynn, a last-minute change of plans has led to a lifetime of love and laughter. Well, sometimes laughter. Jimmy Chou Liang Lin is originally from Taiwan. Age 11, he moved to Sydney, Australia, to study violin at the prestigious Sydney Conservatorium. He turned 16. He moved to New York City to study under Professor Dorothy Delay at the Juilliard School of Music. Today, Mr. Lin teaches at both Juilliard and the Chepard School of Music at Rice University. Went to Atlanta for a recital, and you know, as you can imagine, the pianist who plays with me always needs a page turner. Debbie Lin is originally from Taiwan and moved with her family to Atlanta when she was 17. Debbie is an accomplished pediatrician in her own right. Was a, a medical student at、uh, Emory University at the time.、Um, so、um, my best friend, or one of my best friends,、uh, was a page turner for the pianist. Um, she was a piano major herself, and I still remember it was、uh, October twenty fifth. That the first page turner had gotten ill that day, and she was my wife Deborah's friend, and Debbie has has played the piano, has studied piano. So the page turner asked her to step in for her, to sub for for this page turning duty, and of course page turning is a very it's a terrible job because you don't. Notice the page turner until he or she screws up, and then you know everybody suddenly turns the gaze to the page turner. It's so embarrassing, you know, and the musicians get really angry at the page turner. But if it all goes well, we barely say a thank you to the page turner. Because I was so nervous. I play piano, but I don't play that well, and、um, and this is not exactly a piano recital. So the pieces were violin pieces. So I was very very nervous. So I said, you know what? When you rehearse, can I come and so practice? First of all, they probably never heard of anybody page turning needs rehearsal. Okay, so I'm the only one who actually has to rehearse page turning. So I did. I went there, and、um, and then there was like two and three hours between the rehearsal in the afternoon and the performance, which is at seven thirty at night. So I it was you know it was too far to go back home, and there was nothing to do in the concert hall. And、um, they were just sitting in the backstage, and and so I was sitting there and looking at the drinks, and, and you know, <laughs> and you know, eating the food. And, and I took one look at her and said, "Oh wow, this is great. What a nice person, beautiful gal." So we started chatting, you know, between the rehearsal and the concert, and so we,、uh, we, we, I think, hit it off okay, you know, that first time, and.、Um, And she asked for a photo to be taken with me. I even put my arm around her. I don't know what got into me, but clearly something was not quite normal. And、uh, <laughs> so I,、um, 
wanted to um, ask for her phone number, but being, you know, Asian, Chinese, whatever, you know, not so appropriate to ask, hey, what's your number? And so there was a reception after the concert, and um, yeah, I mean, I was very sure, so he probably, you know, asked around, like, who's this girl, I mean, she doesn't have a boyfriend, and so, so, so he found out I was single and available, so he decided he wanted to ask me out. So at the end of the reception, I waved goodbye to her, and then I, I went back to the hotel with my pianist, Li Jian, and I said, oh man, you know, Deborah, she's a lovely girl, and I'd love to, you know, ask her out, um, but I don't have her phone number. And suddenly he said, oh, you want her number? I have it. She gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> so he pulled out a piece of paper from his pocket and says, here, you can have it. <laughs> so I said, okay, I think, I think maybe that's a very smart lady after all, you know? She didn't want to be too obvious in giving me her phone number. She gave it to my pianist instead. And somehow he got a, a hold of my phone number, and he called me that night. And of course, you know, he called me, and, and I was like, what? He, so he's, he, I think that's the way he said, if I quote it correctly, doctor, doctor, my head hurt. I don't know if you watch Monty Python. One of the favorite, you know, was this uh, John Cleese character with, you know, looks really dumb. And he'll have a handkerchief turned, twirled around four corners of the head. And he'll come into a room, you know, he's a doctor, uh, my brain hurts. <laughs> so I thought I'll break the ice by saying, you know, since he's, Debbie's a doctor, so I said, hey, doctor, I have, my brain hurts. I think it's probably a quote from, uh, 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 the Oz, right? Wizard of Oz? Uh, I think one of those. And of course, I have no sense of humor. I, I said, oh, you have meningitis. You know, hang up. You know? <laughs> and of course, she didn't get it. <laughs> I said, okay, whoops. <laughs> Either starting on the wrong foot, or maybe she, it's better that she knows that I have a really warped mind to start with. Maybe that's good. <laughs> but needless to say, we... we, we we still spoke for over an hour, so so that probably was okay. <laughs> One, two, three, two, two, three, three, two. Well, One thing we can be certain of is that love cannot always be relied on to get the facts. This is one of the beautiful things about love. There is a truth to it, a truth stronger than culture, or tradition, or even memory. Love is immediate, but it can linger for a lifetime. Who are we when we are in love? Does being with someone we love make it easier to be our true selves, or does our true self only reveal itself once we've fallen in love? For many Asian Americans, it can be hard enough to architect an authentic identity when we are influenced by two or more conflicting culture attitudes about what makes a good person, what makes a family, or how to characterize love. This final love story is a contemporary love story, barely a decade old, and one that some consider a less conventional one. By conventional, I don't mean less conventional in essence, because love itself is anything but conventional, but less conventional in practice, in description. Melanie Pang and Kendo Tomina Pang both use pronouns she, her, they have been in a self-described queer relationship for 10 years and married for three. 
Melanie's parents immigrated to the United States from China and the Philippines, while Kendall is Caucasian and Jewish. Whereas in the past, an interracial, interfaith, and queer marriage would have, well, would have been illegal not long ago, one hopes that we are broadening our definition of what love is, embracing the notion that everyone can appreciate love in all forms and fashions. My name is Melanie Pang. I uh, grew up in Missouri City, Texas. Uh, have grown up in the Houston area pretty much my whole life. Um, went to the University of Houston to uh, pursue a degree in journalism, actually to pursue a degree in music education, which you know how that goes, change your major three times. Um, I got my degree in journalism, went back for a degree in social work and have really enjoyed working in nonprofits in Houston for the last 10 years. And I'm currently at the Houston Food Bank um, as their director of advocacy. I'm Kendall Tormina Pang, and I have been married to this wonderful um, person, Melanie, for the last three years. I am originally from Nashville, Tennessee. I um, moved to Houston in 2006 and um, got my bachelor's at Rice University. I spent a year living in Argentina and uh, came back and started working in uh, nonprofits. Did that for about four years, got my MBA from Rice, and um, I've been with PricewaterhouseCoopers ever since. As a management consultant, we have two adorable dogs who are amazing and um, a bunch of amazing nieces and nephews. Uh, we bought our first house together um, about three years ago too, and we've been together for about 10 years. So we first met when we were each um, in our last year of, of our bachelor's degrees, and she was on campus for an LGBT event. Um, and I saw her perform and I was just really smitten with her. And um, so we chatted for just like very briefly and exchanged Facebook contact information. And that's how we first met. <laughs> I have just some small edits. <laughs> Please go for it. So I was there. So I was the president of the LGBTQ organization at the University of Houston. And one of the things we wanted to do at the University of Houston was have a drag show. I messaged their um, vice president, I think at the time, Jordan, and he said, oh, well, you shouldn't just come and see, you should come be a part of it. And so I actually was in drag on stage and there are actually photos of us before we even knew each other's names, like dancing together, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, so that was our like first time meeting was um, after my act. At the start of their relationship, Kendall and Melanie faced the challenges of a long distance relationship when Kendall was pursuing her dream job opportunity in Argentina for a year. But upon their reunion, they faced a more insidious extraction of challenges because of the entrenched heteronormativity prevalent across almost every culture. Personally, the biggest way that heteronormativity impacts our relationship is this like outside pressure trying to sort of like put us in that box of like you know which one of you is the guy or like it, they don't ask people don't ask they just see that one of us has long hair and wears earrings and you know things that they associate with femininity and the other one of us does you know has short hair and doesn't wear makeup or you know a lot of jewelry and they associate that with not femininity 
and they just sort of like make a lot of assumptions about what that means for our relationship that are completely untrue um so it's just mainly like i mean you just try to find the humor in things so it's a lot of that even to the point where when we were getting married we had all of our rehearsals with our um, wedding planner and everything we had told everyone and put in all of the writing and everything that melanie was gonna walk down the aisle second even though i was wearing a dress and she was wearing a suit she was gonna be the last person to walk in and when we and we practiced that the whole time when we got to our actual wedding our wedding planner was like and then melanie and then kendall and i was like no no this isn't how it goes this isn't the plan (laughs) um and I, you know, like Melanie said, you don't have to follow whatever the playbook is of like, oh yeah, the person in the dress usually walks in last. Like, doesn't matter what usually right. happens. You can do whatever the, the heck you want at your own wedding. And that's right. what we wanted was for her to be the last one to walk in. And, and that's what happened and it was fine. But it was just funny that like, <laughs> that just people have these ideas in their mind of like how things are gonna go. And you have like a short haired person and a long haired <laughs> person, like one of you has to be the guy. <laughs> In terms of sexuality, neither Kendall nor Melanie identify as lesbian. They prefer to use the term queer to both define their sexual orientation and their marriage. For me, it's very inclusive. So, um, you know, lesbian is specifically like women who only like other women. Um, Gay for me is also very inclusive. I'll call myself gay. Um, But it's also like kind of rooted in like a term that's more typically applied to men and so it's kind of like I'm trying to shoehorn myself into like you know like can I join your group of men (laughs) um which is fine uh yeah so I queer for me is like more of an umbrella term of like the spectrum of the LGBT community because there's there's like an almost an infinite number of sexual orientations um besides just queer and excuse me lesbian and gay there's bi there's pan etc um and so i because i don't identify as lesbian i just prefer to be sort of under that umbrella yeah i i like the um yeah i don't i don't like to be pigeonholed or told you know that if i if i were to have some kind of other attraction it's like oh well, what would that mean for me it's like, no, I don't want to have a crisis every time I am reevaluating. You know, I do believe that sexuality is very fluid over the time of your life and in moments. Like, you know, some people um, would joke, I keep bringing up college for some reason, but just would joke that they are like, insert person's name sexual. So it was like, it's not that I'm attracted to all these people. I'm just attracted to, you know, I'm a Kendall sexual or whatever. And it's like, oh, honey, (laughs) you know, let's just free yourself by creating a more inclusive label. Most of all, love should be freedom. Sometimes this freedom comes at a price, and thanks to the trials and efforts of equal rights pioneers and trailblazers who came before us, we've managed to create legislation and enact change to liberate love from the chains of heteronormativity, history, and bigotry. So yeah, marriage equality, I mean, that's that's huge. And now we have workplace equality. I think that was a piece of news that, what did it come out, 2019? Uh, it was very overshadowed. Very, it was either but... late 2019 or very early 2020 that was so ignored so overshadowed and was such a big deal for me personally that I have federal protection 
against being discriminated in my job for being gay. That's huge. Because before that, it was like, you can get married on Saturday and fired on Monday as a gay person, like just for being gay. And you have no federal recourse. And if you live in Houston, Texas, you had no recourse at all. There was nothing you could do about it. They could say, hello, we learned you're gay and you're fired for that. And you could just pack your bags and leave. You couldn't sue anyone, couldn't do anything. Yeah, and I think um, these legal protections, like, of course, now you're getting me to put my, like, director of advocacy hat on, (laughs) but get me real riled up. Um, You know, those policies really stratified the LGBTQ community. It was like, if your main concern was getting married, you must not have a whole lot Mm -hmm. else to worry about Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, when it comes to finding a job, keeping a job, Mm -hmm. um, making sure you're not getting kicked out of your housing. just your general safety and well-being. I mean, Mm -hmm. there are so many things to the LGBTQ community that were even more core to our success Mm -hmm. um, that we as privileged people didn't have as much to worry about. But if I think about like the life we want to build together in the future, the thing that I have a lot of faith in is that anything we've ever wanted and and pursued, we've we've gotten. Like, (laughs) this is not because of me as an individual but you know if we want rights we're advocates for that like we want to be a part of that um you know when i was in college people would say if you want marriage equality move to california and i would be like what so every gay person in texas should move to california that makes no sense right like we live here we live here and we want to make our lives better here we want to make everyone's lives better here Mm -hmm. um and so our life is not just built on the love we have for each other it's built on the love we have for everyone around us we want our families to be whole and successful and feel you know happy and healthy we want those same things for our neighbors Mm -hmm. Um, yeah regardless of their race their sexual orientation etc yeah we immigration status yeah so i mean we've been very passionate about you know, fighting poverty, fighting injustice, wherever we are. And I, I don't see that changing. So yeah, I'd like to do more of that in the future. Yeah. Short term. future life I'd like to build. Sounds great. It comes as no surprise that we are at the end of our podcast and our ideas about what love is or what love should be are no more clearer than when we started. Love is elusive and is avoided capture for this song. Perhaps it's better to let love keep doing its work. That's because love is as expensive and as nuanced as each of us are as people. Most of all, we hope these stories have illustrated, at least to some degree, the transcendent quality of love that travels over time and space to find us and unite us, whoever and wherever we are. Happy Valentine's Day, y'all. See you next time. Love, Asian America. <laughs>